Higher up. Or don't. It's the best forgotten Hello and welcome to another episode of Best Forgotten Movies, the podcast all about the films that time has forgot. I'm Gareth Green and joining me as always is my full-time co-host and part-time lover, the one and only Andrew Phillips. Hello there. And today we're traversing the jungles of Bengala in our search for Simon Winter's The Phantom. Will we find a forgotten relic from a simpler time? Or a chest filled with human shit? Listen on to find out. Just take a look around. Darkness rules the earth. In a dangerous world. Governments crumble. Chaos reigns. In a treacherous time. There is opportunity in chaos. Evil is a fact. We shall succeed where they have failed. Drax is on a quest for a supernatural power. They know far too much. And courage. Stop them. We're the only one who can. Is a phantom. Somebody I already killed. There are some who say he is only a myth. Soon they will discover the Phantom is real. This 1996 slice of pulp stars Billy Zane as the effortlessly punchable Indiana Zane Man, a purple-suited superhero more commonly known to the criminal underworld as the Phantom. This masked Avenger finds himself embroiled in a battle of good against evil when improbably named New York businessman Xander Drax discovers the first of a collection of relics with world-altering powers. With the help of his ex-girlfriend Diana Palmer, played by the original Buffy and pub quiz nightmare Christy Swanson, the Phantom must race to discover the remaining relics before they fall in the hands of Drax and his goons. Who will win in this race against Titan? Oh, come on, the Phantom wins. It's clear. Yeah, it's, it's clear. Of he does. <laughs> He's slamming evil wherever he can, uh, wherever he can go. Now, this week's recommendation comes from you, Andy. It so, does. Th- so the floor is yours. Can you tell us a little bit about why you chose the Phantom for Best Forgotten Movies? I saw this about five years ago. I was going through all the pulp '90s adaptations that I could find, and we'll pretty much be going through all of them at some point during this podcast series. And it's the last of its kind as well. So this is an interesting one to go for, because after this point, they stopped making these pulp adaptations. I think the uh, the number was up on them. Yeah, it does feel like an end of an era for this mm. film. And when the pulp film does make a resurgence, it's with all these modern blockbuster trappings. It does feel like a film out of time, even for the time that it was made in 1996, it doesn't feel like a film that had been made in 96. It feels much earlier than that. I thought it was made much earlier than when it was. Mm. Because I've gone into this film quite blind. My only memory of The Phantom was that purple suit. And I vaguely remember a scene in which a man gets stabbed in the eyes through a microscope. But other than that, I have pretty much no memory of The Phantom. And if you wouldn't have recommended it for an episode, I wouldn't have never thought of this film ever again. Yeah, my only memory prior to watching the film, nearer to the time when it actually came out, was a still 
of the Phantom when he's sitting on his chair that is hardly used in the film and they made a big deal of. That's the only image I recognise and thought, oh, that looks like it might be a good movie. I actually don't think that the poster shot is in the film whatsoever. No. Which is quite unfortunate. It's in the trailer. Yeah, it is. But I don't think it's in the film. It's a good shot as well. It is, and they don't use it. I think there's many things that they shot that they didn't use in this film. This film feels like a movie that's been cut down to its bare bones. Oh yeah, that's really apparent as well in the opening like three minutes, the prologue, which we will get into in a moment. But I thought it would be a good one to go through because it has many issues which would have affected the film at the time, but also many virtues as well, which are all mixed up together in a big soup. Now, before we get into the story, I think it's important that we set the scene. And you've been doing some research, actually, conducting a little research into the background behind the Phantom. So can you tell us a little bit, Andy? This is a comic book character who's one of the originals. He predates many of the classic comic book characters that we know and love today. Yeah. And in a way, a lot of them have actually plagiarized the Phantom. He is one of those characters that he is the original, but most of the comic book characters have taken different elements from him. So the Phantom becomes not his own character, even though he was the original. The Phantom was created in 1936, and he's part of the King Features Syndicate conglomerate of comic books. And he was massive in the late 30s and the 1940s. And he was created by Lee Falk, who actually worked on The Phantom all the way up until his death in 1999. And The Phantom is still a comic strip that is still going. So he's still around with us, but not in any kind of major sense. He's very much a, a legacy character. He's just sitting under the radar. But at its peak, the Phantom was read by nearly 100 million people every day. So that gives you a perspective into how big this character was in the 1940s. And I really want to emphasize that this character was big in the 1940s. (laughs) Because this this explains many of the problems that the film had coming out in the 1990s. Yeah, it's only 50 years later. Of course, yeah. And there's going to be there's bound to be some people that remember the Phantom. Oh, of course. They may be 70 years old and wearing tenor ladies, but yeah. they remember. And his two main taglines are the ghost who walks and the man who cannot die. And Lee Falk, in order to create the character, drew on elements of King Arthur, El Cid, Zorro, and Tarzan, who was originally a very mysterious character. They didn't reveal who was the Phantom until later on in the comic book series. He was kind of twiddling his thumbs to see what kind of character was behind the mask. And we'll go into it a bit later when we discuss some of the characters in the film. One of the characters was originally meant to be the Phantom, but the author changed his mind at the last minute and went for a different direction. Yeah. And also in terms of the filmmaking landscape at the time, I can see why this film came to be made because Indiana Jones was a great success in the 1980s and it being inspired by the Phantom source Mm -hmm. material, I can see why somebody would like to cash in on that. And they bring in elements from other comic book sources like the Batman series. Mm. It's important to mention that Tim Burton's Batman came out not too long before this did and was a great success. So I can totally see why a studio would home in on the phantom as a film to make it's like oh look at all these films that are coming out that are inspired by it we Mm. can cash in on this yeah it may be some cynicism involved but they hired the right guy and jeffrey baum who had actually wrote the last crusade but there's a little bit of backstory behind that as well isn't there with jeffrey baum as a writer yeah there's the production of this film yields the law of diminishing returns yeah 
as each successive director is less good than the last one. <laughs> so we start off in the 1970s when Sergio Leone wow. was interested in making an adaptation of The Phantom. He wanted to make two films, one based on The Phantom and the other one based on Mandrake the Magician, which is Lee Falk's other famous creation. And for various reasons, that never happened. And then in the early 90s, Joe Dante was attached to create an adaptation of The Phantom. And this is where Jeffrey Baum was attached to the film and created the screenplay. Now, this version of The Phantom was meant to be much more tongue-in-cheek and featured a winged demon. Wow. Yeah, so they were going much further off the comic strip, which is much more grounded than that. It doesn't really feature any supernatural elements. So this is another thing we'll go into later. The Phantom doesn't feature any supernatural elements whatsoever. So, yeah, because um, I do have issues with the supernatural elements in the film, Yeah, uh, which I imagine we will get I into. I think they've all come from another place. And there were some actors involved. I think Michael Douglas was attached for a while and then dropped out. Bruce Campbell was up for it for a while and oh, then didn't get the that. role. During this period, Billy Zane had been introduced to the Phantom during the shooting of Dead Calm, Philip Noyce's film, and fell in love with the character. And he lobbied for the part and gained the role. And they were weeks away from shooting when the plug was pulled over the budget. And the film lay dormant for about another year. So within that time, Billy Zane created his character. He bulked up, got the right physique. And they went for a couple of directors. The second director after Dante was Joel Schumacher. And then he dropped out. And then they finally landed on Simon Winter, who actually got the job very late on in production. I think they wanted to make the film quite quickly. So he was brought on almost at the last minute yeah. to uh, bring it into some sort of shape anyway that was filmable. Well, that makes sense because it does feel rushed as a film. Yes, it was a very rushed production. There's a cheapness to some of the sets yeah. and an almost TV quality to the city scenes. It reminded well, a me a lot, lot of it's Batlot. Yeah, it, it is Batlot. Reminded me a lot of the Superman television series. Yeah. Clark and Lois. Starring everyone's favourite Superman, Dean Kane. Oh, of course. He's right at the top. <laughs> he shits on Christopher Reeves. So we land on Simon Winter, who is the director of Daryl. Uh, oh, of course. Cool 80s film. That classic. Starring Barrett Oliver. Free Willy. Okay. Operation Dumbo Drop. Yeah. And that old classic Crocodile Dundee in LA. <laughs> so, he, so he's had a quite varied career then. Yeah, he went on to much bigger, better things after The Phantom, obviously. Yeah. So, we go from Sergio Leone to the director of Free Willy. Wow. Yeah, in the space of 20 years. That explains a lot. And I imagine each version of the film would have been quite remarkably different as well. I imagine Sergio Leone's would have been a lot more serious. Yeah, I really want to get into the Joe Dante aspect of the film as well. Because there are elements of Joe Dante to The Phantom, and that's when it works the best. Yeah, there's remnants, and it's mainly because... They used the Jeffrey Baum script. It seems to me that it's had uncredited rewrites. A lot of editing has gone on and there's been a different emphasis put on the performances of that script. But it is the Jeffrey Baum script and that's where a lot of the Dante-ness comes from. Okay, so we've now provided you with a little bit of context as to when The Phantom was made and why it was made. But now it's time to get into the story. Let's really strip this down. Well, it's already stripped down. Yeah, let's strip it down further. <laughs> let's strip it down further. 
Yeah, the best way to describe the Phantom that it's economical. It's like a Poundland Indiana Jones. It's interesting to bring up those Indiana Jones comparisons because they are going to come up time and time again. Now, there's two main reasons for this. One, because Jeffrey Baum wrote Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Yep. The second influence is the fact that the Phantom inspired Indiana Jones in part. Indiana Jones was created out of the love of those early 1930s 1940s pulp action heroes of which the phantom was part of that this film is caught in something of a vicious circle it is yeah because it inspired indiana jones and but it comes off like a rehash exactly it comes off looking like a complete ripoff of indiana jones because it's come so far later and i imagine it was made because of the success of indiana jones anyway we've seen this happen with another film recently as well in john carter in that it inspired many of the films that have just come before it. And yet it comes off looking like a rip-off simply because it's late to the game. Yeah, because John Carter is much earlier than even The Phantom. It's like 1900s. Yeah. Okay, so The Phantom begins with a pre-title sequence that to me feels both out of place and completely edited down. Did you get a feeling as well? Yeah, it left me very confused. There's one part of this that I did like, though. I do like the fact that they use the classic Phantom opening tagline of for those who came in late that tagline pretty much opens every single phantom comic strip and i do like the fact that they used it it's one of those things where they've been very faithful to the comic books and i do like the touch but the rest of the sequence feels incredibly rushed and it's incredibly confusing oh yeah it really sets me off on the wrong foot especially in terms of the supernatural elements going on in the film And the way that it sets up the characters as well, it leads you to believe something completely different due to the narration as well. The narration tells a story of how the first Phantom came to be in that his father was killed by pirates and he was washed ashore and then trained to become the Phantom in a way. Yeah, that's the basic story. There's this ritual where they give him some mystical ring that glows. Yeah, and there's a slight revenge plot in there as well. There is, but it's never drawn upon in the actual film. not at all. But the thing that makes this confusing is the character's tagline is the ghost that never walks and the man who can't die. And the reason this is is because there have been many phantoms over the year. In fact, the phantom that we focus on and the phantom that's focused on in the comic books is the 21st phantom, Kit Walker, who's played by Billy Zane. Now... The previous Phantom, who's played by Patrick McGowan as a ghost. As Bill Cosby in Ghost Dad. (laughs) He narrates this section as the first Phantom. So this is why it becomes confusing, because he's narrating a story by a different character, but he's also playing another character, another descendant, later on in the film. So it just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, he, he narrates this whole segment as if the character in it is himself. Yeah. And yet it's 400 years ago, and he clearly wasn't alive anywhere around that time. Yeah. But yet it leads you to believe that as the audience member. It's essentially a cheat. You could be forgiven for thinking that Billy Zane was a second Phantom. Yes, exactly. And not the 21st. Because that's exactly what I thought. There's something that I do like about this intro, although it is brief, it gets the origins completely out of the way, which usually bogged down a superhero film. Well, especially the superhero films of the last 15 years. I don't think films of this time, especially 90s superhero films, got bogged down in origin stories as much as they did later on. I feel that we're in a world of origin stories, and uh, I think they're only just starting to turn that round. 
Yeah, it does seem that way. I think it's because so many superhero films are coming out and bombing that they can't keep rehashing the same origins <laughs> time and time again. We're on to our third Spider-Man in what must be only about six or seven years. Yeah. And they can't tell the same story about Uncle Ben being killed and him seeking revenge on the person. It, it, they, they can't rehash that same plot anymore. So hopefully it means that it'll kickstart the genre in the same way that it used to be back then, where they just cut straight to the meat. I like it, but I think they should have seeded this story as the rest of the main story progresses. It, it feels like it's a mystery waiting to be unfolded, but they tell you that mystery at the start. That's it. I do like the briefness of it, but at the same time, I think that there are profoundly smarter ways to communicate this information. Mm. I would have much preferred it if the criminal underworld all had their own different stories about who the Phantom is and what his backstory could be. And when it's revealed to us, the audience, later in the film, we actually find out it's a little bit of everything. And the tagline is correct. It does feel like you walked in the film late, which is not always a good thing. No. I feel like I'm having to constantly catch up because you just bombarded with a barrage of images. It feels like television. Yes. In that it's like previously on the Phantom. Yeah, it's very much like a television recap. And you're jumping into a series just halfway through. You have no idea who these characters are, and all you've got is this three-minute snippet of previously to try and get any kind of traction. And as an aside, the aforementioned pirates... The Seng Brotherhood. They have actually been renamed from the comic books. They were changed from Sing to Seng to avoid offence. Oh, right. And then we jump forward to 1938 and the Bengala jungle. And it's here that we're introduced to James Ramar, who, in case our audience don't know, was originally cast as Hicks in Aliens. Yeah, so this is the guy that got chucked out of Aliens for being a druggie. Yeah, pretty, pretty much. He had his passport revoked. And here he's playing another wannabe. Yeah, he is. <laughs> so, initially, he comes across immediately as your Indiana Jones figure. Yeah, he is the Indiana Jones wannabe, but there's a twist to that, obviously. Yeah, there's a twist that's revealed that he's actually a, a shit. Yeah, a, a little bit of a bad guy. Just a he's little, a little bit, bit of a, shit. of a bad guy. This character is not made the most of at all when you look in the context of what his role is. I do wish that they would have opened with a more Indiana Jonesy wink wink reference just to play on that further with this whole revelation that this guy is actually a villain but at the same time i do like that they're immediately having a little twist on indiana jones you open and you see this man in a fedra you obviously think he's gonna be the guy of the piece and then in the next scene he's making a kid drive a truck over a rickety bridge Mm. just because he doesn't have the balls to do it himself and so we enter this set piece which springs to mind indiana jones in the temple of doom oh completely and utterly yeah I do think it's a nice set piece in that it's very practical, but it just feels like a rehash. And even the kid feels like... Short round. Short round, but with none of the personality. I also noticed around this part in the film that there is an obscene amount of Federers in this film. Everybody seems to be wearing them. Yeah, it's Federer City. It looks like they'd had a Judd Lott brought in and gone, yeah, we're making this 1930s film. Have you got any Federers? Yeah, sure, we got Federers. We got brown Federers, blue Federers, grey Federers. It's like, yeah, we'll take the lot. Following this bridge set piece, we enter a cave, which looks like the cave from Raiders. It does, and it's around this point where the goons find Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skulls. (laughs) So this is a weird mishmash of all Indiana Jones films, past and future. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I actually think Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skulls stole from the Phantom. I can imagine that, actually. Mm. It makes sense. I bet George Lucas was watching the Phantom go, Although this looks like a good plot for uh, the new indie film. (laughs) But we're going to have an alien called Gubu. (laughs) (laughs) 
I'm George Lucas. I'm good at stories. It's like George Lucas had sex with Kermit the Frog. And this was the <laughs> this was the result. So do we get Phantom at this point? I kind of missed it. I was making notes. And do you know when the guy gets strangled by the skull? Is that the Phantom or is that just a spirit? I don't know. That This is the thing. There's this vague very mysticism vague, isn't it? throughout the mm. film. This whole supernatural element that's never really drew upon or exploited in an effective way. Well, Instead, you get these scenes where a skeleton comes to life and strangles a man to death. And then it's just forgotten about. Yeah. There's nothing else like that in the rest of the film. Yeah. Well, this is the main point that even some contemporary reviews of The Phantom have been asking, what is The Phantom's power? I, what I, is his special skill? I asked that all the way through the film because it seems that he can talk to ghosts in yep. his dad, but you're never really led to believe if it's real or in his head. Mm. He wears this ring that can shoot lasers. Yeah. Which just comes out of left field at the end of the film, but I don't get what he can do. He just seems to be able to run through a jungle, and that's really in about it. In a purple it. suit. In a purple he, suit, he yeah. He can get away wearing a purple well, Actually, no, he doesn't get away wearing a purple suit. He looks fucking stupid, but... <laughs> it's uh, it's we'll a ridiculous shade of purple as well. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's at one with the forest. That's his special skill, <laughs> I think. <laughs> See, I wasn't sure if this was actually the work of the tribesmen this skeleton coming alive and strangling someone. I didn't actually know what was going on. And it feels that sometimes he's helped out a lot by his animal friends. Like, he has a horse and he has a pet wolf. And they do a lot of the work for him. <laughs> Especially the wolf. It's a very Hong Kong Fui-esque yeah. type of setup here. So, one of these goons has been killed by this skeleton for reasons we don't know. And it's after he's found this skull which has mystical properties. Yeah, because he's working for the main villain, who yeah. we'll go on to. Xander Drax. Xander Drax, yeah. And they're collecting antiquities for this mustachioed villain. Does that sound familiar at all? <laughs> you know, the only thing the villain is missing is a swastika. Yeah. They even play on the old idea of the Nazi dress code later in the film. Yeah, he's not missing a spear though, is he? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. And we return to the bridge, and there is a sequence involving a fight between the Phantom and James Ramar as Quill, because the main point of the Phantom is to protect these skulls from being stolen, and he's pretty fucking useless at doing this. And he has no idea where they are No, <laughs> as well. Throughout the film, we find out he doesn't have a clue where they no. are. It's like somebody that's lost his keys. You would have thought he would have done some background research on his job. Yeah, exactly. It's like, I have to mine these skulls that I have no idea. But they're down the couch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's during this fight that we get the off-the-cuff revelation that Quill has killed Kit Walker, a.k.a. the Phantom's father. Who I think is Patrick McGowan. Yes. <laughs> and yet the Phantom never comments on that. Shall we talk a little bit about Billy Zane? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Bless him. <laughs> I think this is as good a point as any to actually talk about Billy Zane's performance yeah. in the film. Personally, I would say that he plays the Phantom as being cocksure with a capital C-O-C-K. <laughs> <laughs> he expertly rides that line between being punchable and effortlessly punchable. He plays him as the handsome stranger, but there's nothing there for for you to sympathise with. No, there's no the real that, humanity to the role. Yeah. It doesn't feel like a human being in the same way that Indiana Jones does, and that's clearly what they're aiming for. They want that cocky attitude that Indiana Jones has. But 
He comes across as a cartoon character. It's not as if he's not been given that material for the audience to sympathise with, because at the end of the day, he's very much like your Batman and your Superman, where he's a superhero that's lost his father or yeah. lost his family. But in having Patrick McGowan on tap softens that a lot and you don't get any motivation other than the fact that he's taken over the family business there's no motivation for him to do what he's doing and i think it's strange that patrick McGuin does appear as his father at a couple of points in the film and he does converse with him as this ghost type character and it's clear that there is a real relationship between father and son the father clearly trained the son to take the place of the father mm. and yet the phantom himself has no anger or no beef with the guy that killed his dad. This guy's constantly talking about it, like, I killed the Phantom, how could he be here? And yet the Phantom doesn't give a shit. There's this vague revenge plot that never amounts to anything. And it never pays off. At all. And even the Patrick McGoon Phantom doesn't seem that pissed off. No, He's no, no. He's just like all. a lovable uncle. There's no, avenge me, son. Yeah, well, it just needed to have depth, really. That's, Ex- that's what it needed. That is the word. It's yeah. depth. depth. That is exactly that. what it's missing. You can tell he's committed to the role. Yeah, he is. Down to his physique and everything and how he's playing it. He did examine the physique and also the movements of the comic book character to get an accurate portrayal of the character and how he moves and how he looks. But there's not enough there. No, and I think it's less to do with Billy Zane as a performer and more to do with the writing and the script, the direction as well. Because you do get the sense that Billy Zane's trying really hard. Yeah, in every single scene that he is, he's trying. And there's a couple of tonal shifts that make you scratch your head a little bit in Mm. terms of is he playing this seriously or is he playing this as a joke at times? And I do get a sense that he's winking at the audience in parts of the film as a way to say, yeah, I know this guy's completely a cock. I'm in on the joke as well as you. But there are other times when that's completely missing. And Mm. I think that's a problem with the direction rather than a problem with the performance. And this whole set piece ends back on the bridge and there's a really nice practical effect where the bridge starts to snap and the truck is wrapped in vines and tips over completely upside down. It's actually probably my favourite set piece in the film, even though it is a complete rip-off of Indiana Jones yeah. and the Temple of Doom. Mm-hmm. I really like the setup. He and the boy swing to safety via the vines. So, yeah, you do get that Tarzan element yeah. that Lee Falk was going for. We cut to the Jungle Patrol. I don't even know why they had it, because they're in about two scenes, and you think it's going to build into some proper alliance, but then it just disappears from the film. No, I was always... they change location. Yeah, I was always waiting for a moment like in The Untouchables where the cavalry arrives, mm. and it never happens. Oh, I was always expecting them to arrive at the last minute and offer some aid to the Phantom, and at no point in the film do they ever add up to anything like that. They're mm. just there. It seems just to be another time waster to try and just push the film to that 90-minute mark. Yeah. And then we got our first look at the Phantom's lair. Which is very Batcave. And he's got his own little Alfred. Exotic yeah. Alfred. Exotic Alfred. Young yeah. exotic Alfred. I can't recall his name. No. And we get the exposition on the skulls at this point, in terms of there being three of them. And it is the point that we are finally introduced to Patrick McGowan as Ghost Dad. We've heard his voice. We've got this whole legacy behind the film up until this point about who is this Patrick McGowan type that we heard in the narration at the beginning. Mm. And then he's quickly out of the film again. Yeah, it feels like they had Patrick McGoon for a week and had yeah. to do all his scenes and then he was magically whisked away again to his retirement home. Yeah, they had... <laughs> <laughs> and you never really get 
whether the father's just in his head or whether it is a supernatural power that he can talk to the dead. No, that was a big problem I had mm. with the film. I was always waiting for it to be revealed that he could talk to more dead people. I thought that he could talk to previous phantoms, and at points in the film he would talk to other phantoms in order to gain clues about where these skulls could be. But that never comes to pass. Again, it's just another lost opportunity. Yeah, because you could either go down that route, or you could go down the route that it is psychological, and it's something he has to deal with, and at the end he lets it go. Yeah, it's the film's he all about him letting go. his father go and yeah. getting over that death, and actually having the opportunity for revenge against the person that killed his father yeah. and he turns it away. He realises that he doesn't need to fulfil that need. But they do neither and this particular storyline has no weight at all. Even at the end of the film Patrick McGowan's character is just happy that Kit can find a girlfriend <laughs> so he can have a break. <laughs> for all intents and purposes he's not really dead. No. In the film he's just hanging around. He just appears at certain points and there's no reason why that character in particular has to be dead. Yeah, he wants his son to get a shag, really. That's yeah. his main objective. <laughs> Dip your wick, son. <laughs> we zip across to New York now. Yeah. This film has a, a number of location changes which are quite jarring. They bear no relation to each other. They're, they're halfway across the globe. And I think that because it's always zipping between locations, there's actually a cheapness to a lot of the sets that they create for the yes. film. Because they're only going to be in the film for a couple of scenes and then gone forever. Mm. And we get introduced to Christy Swanson as Diana Palmer. Oh, yeah. She's such a strong female character as well. Yeah, I was reading an interview with Simon Windsor and he was... He kept going on about how he thought these female characters were great and really strong and complex. And there's none of that. No, no, it's <laughs> it's all lost from the film. She's just there to be a damsel in distress. And they have a few moments where she tries to take charge of a situation and it, she falls on her ass in trying to do so. There are no points where she's in control of her own fate. No, no, she's like a wannabe adventurer, but never actually adventurers. Yeah, exactly. And she has the look of Hayley Atwell from Captain America, that yeah, kind of classic nineteen thirties look. But she has none of the gumption that that character has. None of the spunk. None of the spunk. That's what she's missing. I, I need to use the word spunk in this at some point. <laughs> yeah, and we get her uncle. No, it's not a father. It's her uncle. I keep. Forgetting oh, of course, that. yeah. I don't know why though. Why is it not a father? I have no idea. It's her uncle for some weird reason. Anyway, and they're at this foundation dinner and Xander Drax appears at the party too. And what a name, Xander Drax. Xander Drax. I instantly heard that name and thought that is a great villain name. Mm. He is definitely the bad guy. And he's played by Treat Williams. I love Treat Williams. I, I've got a soft spot in my heart for Treat Williams. I was, I was disappointed of... to learn that Treat Williams, that's not his first name. What? That's his middle name. Oh, my whole like world David. has been shattered. No, it's Richard. <gasps> yeah, it's Richard. Oh, uh, at least it's not I, I, Keith. Yeah, it's Richard Williams. I think to avoid confusion with the famous animator, Richard Williams. Oh, of course, who, yeah. Who, Roger Rabbit. But yeah, if you've got a middle name called Treat, then you're going to use it, aren't of you? Of course, yeah. Yeah. He does the theatrical performances really well, but he also has grit when it's required of him. And I've always thought that Treat Williams is an actor that's been underappreciated. And I think it's because films moved on and his performance ended up being something that was more suited to television yeah although i'd say that his performance in this is probably the most entertaining aspect of the De whole film. definitely he chews scenery at every chance that he gets and it's so much fun i think that he is a true holdover from the joe dante version of the film because he's the character that feels most like a joe dante character yeah 
We also get briefly introduced to Diana's playboy suitor, Jimmy Wells, who was going to be revealed as the Phantom in the original comics, and then Lee Falk changed his mind. So you had any idea that the Phantom would have been this foppish, playboyish character. So it is the prototype Batman, really. It really it, is. It, I mean, Batman owes so much to the Phantom. And he's there for comic relief, but doesn't really get much to do. And again, just disappears from the film. So it's around this point that we actually get some sort of idea of how Xander Drax is a bad guy as well. Diana Palmer, the character, seems to be onto his game, which yeah. puts her in danger's way. Yeah, he's got people in his pocket as well. There's a yeah. whole meeting. One of the guys ends up, I think it's the police commissioner or something like that, that uh, ends up being uh, a grass. We get this really strange plot strand that Diana's going to look for the skulls herself and then boards a seaplane. <laughs> yeah, and I have no idea how she got to know about these skulls. There's something about the librarian that Xander Drax has hired to do all this research. Is It's all very tenuous. Yeah, it is. It, there's no real connective tissue between all these plot points. And we feel like we are jumping into Diana Palmer's story halfway through. And then we get this famous microscope, Xander Drax's secret weapon. Yeah, I don't know how I actually got to see the scene, but it was my only memory of the film, yeah. other than the purple suit, which I think is ingrained in anybody's mind who yeah. saw the trailer. But all I can remember is this blade in a microscope that pierces a guy's eyes, and it made me terrified of looking down microscopes <laughs> for a short while in my childhood, yeah. in case somebody decided to stab my eyes out. Yeah, so he um, invites this Dr. Fleming librarian character into his office and this is his punishment for leaking information to the palmers he sets it up you get the setup which yeah. is when you see how it works beforehand and then you get the payoff which is all done off screen in the terrifying blood curdling scream and then you get a little pun from xander drax with a smile <laughs> but again it feels like a joe dante scene i feel like that would have been in joe dante's script yeah, absolutely and then this seaplane gets hijacked by the Sky Pirates in some dodgy effect sequences. <laughs> First of many dodgy effect yeah. sequences. They are kidnapped by Sky Captain and the World of Tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> Bypassing Salah. Yeah. Played by not Nazi Catherine Zeta Jones. Yeah. Who clearly is Nazi. And then isn't at all. Oh, no. God, this character is. So wishy-washy, just so vague and ill-defined. Yeah. There's nothing really going on with her. She's just there to look pretty. Be menacing, be nice. Be menacing, yeah. be nice. She, she's um, Elsa Schneider light meets Pussy Galore. I actually wrote in my notes that they're really aiming for Elsa Schneider with yeah. this one and failing completely because she's so ill-defined as a character. Yeah. She's written as badass Nazi bitch who's full of her own self-importance and everything, and then all it takes is one line and she completely switches. For reasons unknown, no. she just switches sides. We don't know what's going on in her head. Again, lacking depth. Yes, completely. Say. This is one of Catherine Zeta-Jones' earliest film performances, isn't it? Yeah, because she'd been in Darling Buds of May on yep. television, and she'd done an episode of Young Indiana Jones Chronicles. I do think she would have made for a good character in an Indiana Jones film around that time. Mm. She does have that screen presence as well. It's weird to see her in this film and so criminally underused when she's just on the cusp of her career, really, in the movie business, because she's still got the Mask of Zorro entrapment Classic. Chicago ahead of her. And it's not until... Only a couple of years down the line that she starts to get noticed as being a legitimate movie star. Yeah. There's also an element to Diana Palmer's character 
that again is not drawn upon in any meaningful way. But it's revealed at some point that she's actually the ex-girlfriend of Kit Walker when he was being educated in the US. Why is that necessary for her character to have this background relationship with Kit Walker when it's it's, never drawn upon? And it's better to not have it. If you're painting this mysterious picture of the Phantom, it's better to have him meet her for the first time yeah exactly and keep his background vague and mysterious but i think it's again one of these things where they're being economical and there's no depth all the things that she's been that's made him fall in love with her are off screen or not talked about yeah he's automatically in love with her and has been in love with her for many years so we don't need to know why he's in love with her it almost gives them an excuse not to really try this time around because they throw out the idea that there's some backstory between them and then they don't really have to try with all the character stuff because it's there it's like oh you liked me as kit but look at me i'm now captain amazing exactly it's that scene in attack of the clones where obi-wan and anakin are speaking in the elevator about previous adventures that they've had as (laughs) if it's a classic backtracking yeah as if it's just a way to say oh look we are having all those adventures that you think we've had but we're just not showing you and then the phantom's allies come back into it and they tell him what's going on because he can't do it himself he (laughs) finds out that the plane has been hijacked by this again this is the phantom just seems to have a lot of people around him telling him things and he's not doing no he should have his butler And that's about it, but he should be resourceful. I really wish if they were adding this whole kind of mystical element to the Phantom, again, it's just never really fleshed out. But isn't that a way that he could sense something in the same way that, like, Spider-Man does, for instance? Yeah. Because it seems that he does have that power at the beginning. We see him almost sense that these goons are in the cave about to steal one of the skulls, Mm. and he rushes to the rescue. This is another one of those points where the information could have been communicated in a much smarter way once more. And we get the most comical use of the suit at this point when he tries to rescue Diana from their hideout. And it really demonstrates how useless this suit actually is. There's no camouflage capabilities with it at all. He is there as clear as day, bright yeah. purple against the fucking blue of the sea it's when he's and the cr- grey of the it's, ship. It's when he's shimmying up the rope onto the <laughs> boat in this full garb. I think you could definitely argue a case for not having the classic phantom suit in a film context because I think it works fine in comic books, but the suit in practical reality doesn't work. It's the same reason they haven't used the Wolverine suit so far with Hugh Jackman. Yeah. It's because it looks great on the page, but the moment you start to apply that to reality, it no longer fits the world that they've created. And this phantom suit does not fit that world. Yeah, it's even like the Captain America thing where they took the wings off his helmet. Yeah. Because, as you can see in the early Captain American films, it looks fucking stupid. It really does. But on the page, it looks fine. (laughs) Yeah. There are definitely more ways as well that they could have infused the suit with that classic purple. Mm. But it just didn't have to be the entire suit. No. It could have been a rim around the goggles that he's wearing or something like that. I think they needed to really go for the camouflage element. Yeah, it needed to have more realistic, real-world applications. Because if you're going to have a character whose one of his taglines is the ghost who walks, you really need him to have some stealthy moves. And the Phantom suit is not stealthy. (laughs) No, not at all. I like the suit in and of itself, just to look at it completely divorced from the film. It's a fine suit. Uh, And Billy Zane looks good in it. 
Yeah, they didn't have to use any padding or anything. That is his body. I did read at one point they were going to add padding to the suit to make his muscles seem more defined, but they, actually he bulks up so much yeah, that they, they didn't just didn't need to, need to do no. it. And it shows he's putting in the work. He's really putting the work yeah, for this exactly. role. He spent a year and a half getting the right physique for it. Although, when he actually gets on the boat, this is some of my favourite dialogue that's not Xander Drax related. So you get all the stuff with him grabbing the gun off Sally and her finding him sexy and things like that. I kind of liked all that stuff. Again, there wasn't enough of it. And, no, not enough because, of that banter. Yeah, and because she changes character halfway through the film, that all gets lost. Of course it as does, well. yeah. So there's some cheeky banter going on between mm-hmm. the two women in the Phantom, and he's sparring off them both, and it works for literally a minute. I thought at this point that the film was coming alive, finally. Yeah. I was like, oh, well, here we go. It's it's actually starting to recapture some of that, and it's it's almost like the director thought, you know what, this is getting too good. We need to bring it back down, guys. Yeah, because there's a really nice bit where the Phantom tells Diana to tie Salah up, and she just punches <laughs> her, and he goes, tie her up. Oh, don't. <laughs> and that's really nice. That's where it comes alive and there's just not enough of it there. It's yeah. just those little moments, but it needs to be the whole film. It's just committing to a particular tone and a particular way of doing things and they just try different bits of each one and they don't. It's again, the director doesn't have a vision for it. He's very much a director for hire, it seems, on this film. Yeah. They get captured because the Phantom is useless and the wolf saves the day again. Oh, of course, yeah. Forgot about the wolf, yeah. of course. The Phantom just walks out onto deck and is instantly captured. Yeah. <laughs> Because of his suit? <laughs> yeah. Oh, shit, it's a suit. I need to change the suit. Yeah. It's rubbish, isn't it? They escape in the red plane, and then they're pursued by the villains on land vehicles. Now, you would think the plane would be much faster at moving across the landscape than the land vehicles, but they <laughs> seem to catch up with them for whatever reason. And then we get other weird things, like the wolf communicates with the horse. Like, oh, actually of course. physically talks to the horse. And they know exactly what they're doing. This is where it shows that line between being supernatural and not and being at one with the forest, but never having a clear through line with it. No, I don't think that Simon Winston knew what he wanted it to be and instead just gave it a little bit of everything and thought, oh, something will stick to this wall. Yeah, it's another example of the Phantom's friends being better than the Phantom. Yeah. Because without those guys, the Phantom would be screwed. (laughs) He would be stuck on an airplane that's about to crash. Yeah, exactly. And that's the kind of thing that you can get away with if it was an origin story. I know we didn't speak about it before, but this whole idea that the Phantom is somebody that's learning to be the Phantom. In this film, we never get that sense. We feel like he's been established as the Phantom for quite a while. He's been doing this for quite a while, and he's fucking awful at it. Well, you get that sense, but from the way that James Romar talks about killing the previous Phantom, it doesn't look like the Phantom's been dead that long. There's the other thing that I was going to go on about before when we were discussing Patrick McGowan. Patrick McGowan was about 72 when he did this film, so he would have been at least 60 when he got killed by James Ramar, which for me seems far too old for this kind of character. <laughs> yeah, could you imagine him in his adult diaper? Yeah. <laughs> swinging through the trees. It's just all wrong. We get the jump from the plane onto the horse, which is done quite nicely. Yeah, and it's, it's, a, all it's a nice mainly it's a nice practical stunt. as well. There is something about this film that I do want to mention about the action. It's Vic Armstrong. There's something always about Vic Armstrong action scenes in that they always feel very practical. Yeah. yeah. And that's obviously what he does. That's his profession. And throughout The Phantom, I don't think most is made of the action that could be. But what little action there is looks really good, actually. Yeah. It's nice practical stunt work going on. Yeah, and we get more examples of Phantom's friends helping him out. We We suddenly get the rope people. Who come out of nowhere. Yeah, the rope people. And they're the ones they just that stop the villains. Them, yeah. 
Like, oh, yes, my friends, the rope people, they'll stop them. <laughs> and it's like, oh, the Phantom's so useless. God knows what the natives think. It's just some idiot in a purple suit <laughs> running around their forest. Oh, I think they probably think he's got special needs. Yeah, maybe they're just helping him out of sympathy. Yeah. <laughs> oh, bless him. He's playing superheroes again. <laughs> Yeah, he's playing with his toys. Yeah. And then we get more exposition back in the Phantom Cave. It's where we get to know about the skulls. It's where Phantom learns that she's mixed up with the Zeng Brotherhood. And it's the last appearance of the Jungle Patrol slash Captain Horton, who you think's going to come into it in a much more major way, but then this is his last scene in the whole film. Yeah, and it's quite early in the film for him to be going out of it, yeah. considering that they make him out to be more than he is earlier yeah. on in the film. And the Phantom sends Diane away back to New York, but he follows her. And we spend the second third of the film in New York, which is probably a better location for the Phantom. Although I will say there is, like I say, a Lois and Clark element to the way that they're captured, definitely. It suddenly reminded me of TV at the time. Mm. But yeah, there there is more at least going on in the shots. It's a nice change of pace at that time. You're wanting something different. And we get more of Drax, which is always a good thing. I think that's exactly what it is that makes this particular part of the film succeed where other parts haven't, is that there's just more Drax. We get to see more of his evilness despite his nicey-niceness. Yeah, because there's a nice bit where the villain's goons get back to our base of operations and they're gloating about how they've got the skull and how they've cleaned it with toothpaste. (laughs) And Drax goes, toothpaste? Really? That's nice. (laughs) (laughs) so there's just some really off the cuff lines and you can tell that he's loving doing this part yeah it does seem like there are a few people in the film having fun billy zane looks like he's having fun the characters all over the place and treat williams does as well there are actually too few scenes in the film where these two characters get to interact which is a shame because both of them are chewing up as much scenery as they can it would have been great to see more of them go head to head in that way Yeah, there's not enough interplay between the villain and the hero. Not anywhere near enough. They're very much separated from each other. Because the Phantom doesn't do his own detective work. He's just piggybacking on the... There's there's not any point where the Phantom actually possesses the skulls and then loses them again. He's always one step behind Drax. I'm pretty sure the Phantom must be the world's most useless superhero. (laughs) Because he's not great up to this point. No, not at all. There's another interesting point here as well. Because the Phantom is also referred to as a folk hero for whatever reason. Drax doesn't believe in the Phantom at this point. Which doesn't make much sense, really, if he believes in the skulls. Again, this is five rewrites away from being a good script, so... There is a great scene here where he throws a spear at another man. (laughs) Yeah, this is... I will say, if we are sounding very wishy-washy on the particulars of the story around this time, it is because the story is very wishy-washy. And I've watched the film twice, and I'm still trying to scrape my memory to remember each intricate detail of the story. The story zips around from one thing to the other within this New York sequence. It's It's got a lot of energy, but yeah. when you stop and think about it, it doesn't make a whole heap of sense. Because you get bits and bobs where the Phantom's followed her, he looks like fucking Dracula with his <laughs> yeah. little glasses on. He befriends a taxi driver, Al, who is a ally and then disappears again from the film. What is it with these kind of pulp films that came out at the time, all having the... Hero sidekick be a taxi driver. Yeah, I'm instantly a, thinking of the shadow. Yeah, the Peter Boyle character. Yeah, exactly. I think there's something about all these films. It must be in the source material. The yeah. idea that the average hero on the street is your good, honest New York taxi driver. Yeah, and we get this Drax set piece where he's having a meeting with the mafia bosses and he's explaining his venture with the skulls to them. 
and one of them gets cold feet. And decides to walk out. And it's at that point that Drax pulls a spear off the wall and throws it at him. <laughs> yeah, just completely impaling the him. It's like horrifically funny. <laughs> uh, and there's, there's a really nice moment after it, because obviously everyone else is shocked. But he pulls the spear out of um, the mob boss. And he's more concerned with the state of his walls. <laughs> he's like looking, he's like, oh shit, I've got a dent there. Yeah, he's only concerned with the real details. It's at this point when we get Diana and Kit meeting for the first time, or again, and we get that whole revelation of him knowing her before. and Again, just entirely unnecessary. And it's actually this character of Jimmy Wells, who bears no other usefulness in the story other than telling Kit where this jade skull is, which is the second skull. And then he disappears from the story as well once his function is complete. Yeah, it's a very workman-like script in this way, isn't mm. it? It's clearly just been hammered down to the bare essentials. Yeah, and we don't really know whether this is Jeffrey Baum or whether it's parts of his script that have been cannibalised and rewritten by script doctors. We've got to push that the Jeffrey Baum script was wrote for Joe Dante, mm. and that isn't the film that was made. There are elements of it in the finished film, but there's clearly been some kind of script doctoring. And we get to the Museum of World History. I love how it's an American film and they have to call it World History. So there's probably museums about American history and then we get the other museum that's about world history. Yeah. So, <laughs> And it's at this point that once again, Kit Walker, the Phantom, is captured. It's another part of this workmanlike script that everything is found far too easily. Now, why isn't this skull in some sort of underground crypt? Yeah, why isn't there anything that needs to be figured out in order to find it? Yeah, there's no detective work at all. No, it has all these elements of there being some kind of smart archaeological thing going on, like in the same vein as Indiana Jones, but it just doesn't have any of the smarts behind it. The supporting character goes, oh, I know where there's a jade skull. Yeah. It's in the museum. Exactly. As if no one else has seen it. Once more, Drax is one step ahead of the Phantom, and that he appears in the museum and takes the skull off him. So the Phantom possesses the skull for all of five seconds. Yeah, he's really the worst type of person for his job. I wish Patrick McGowan's ghost would turn up every now and again just to chew him out. Yeah. Just because he's doing such a fucking awful job as being the Phantom. This is not how you live up to your father's legacy. (laughs) But again, there's no element of that. No, it's like, oh, she seems like a nice young lady. (laughs) That kind of thing. He's just interested in getting his son laid, really. Pretty much. (laughs) Yeah. And also this shows how economical this script is we get the possession of the skull the stealing of the skull from the phantom by drax and learning the location of where the third skull is all in the same scene yeah so from this point he puts the two skulls together they burn a hole in a conveniently placed map on the wall and that shows you where the location of the third skull is if he did that anywhere would the laser beam from the eyes just burn into the nearest map wherever it is (laughs) yeah Like, it's just really trying to go for that Indiana Jones moment where he discovers the true location of the Ark. But it completely fails because it has none of that set up. And they leave and there's a fight in a stairwell. There's this whole sequence in the machine room. Yeah, it's more of a fist fight, isn't it? Yeah, and he suddenly transforms into the Phantom. Like, his costume... Is underneath. He has very strong thighs. <laughs> a lot of headlocks with his thighs that are dangerously close to his genitalia. Thunder thighs are on the loose. Yeah, maybe they should have recalled this thunder thighs. Maybe it's called <laughs> thunder thighs in foreign territories. I killed thunder thighs. How can he be here now? Oh, God, my head! He's got me in his grip! Damn you, thunder thighs! I can feel the heat coming off his genitalia! <laughs> oh, God, kill his, me now! His mystic rod... <laughs> 
Yeah, that's where the third skull is. It's just yeah. a ring around his knob. <laughs> it's the eye of Samutra. <laughs> it's the one-eyed Samutran snake. <laughs> oh dear. And always remember, please listen to Best Forgotten Movies for all of your musings on sophisticated films. And practice safe sex. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and he glides down the cables with his guns. Of course, that's not a euphemism. No, that that's, is. That's really two, genuinely has, what happens. He has two pistols. Oh, he does. Yeah, yeah this is where pistols. we see him use it and never again. And then we get this whole thing where, oh, we know where this third location is. He's like, why do you know it? It's in the Devil's Vortex. As if it's something that everyone knows. So it's kind of a uh, quasi-Bermuda Triangle. Yeah, it is. They, the moment they mention it about where all these ships go missing, you instantly think of the Bermuda Triangle. Which they get to really easily. Oh, yeah, very so quickly. So they There's build no... up to being this place that's really difficult to get to and... They get to it. Again, it's another thing <laughs> where they could have drew upon the mysticism behind the film. They could have drew upon some kind of supernatural element, but instead Winston just decides not to whatsoever. And we get the scene where Salah, the Catherine Zeta-Jones character, is turned by Christy Swanson's Diana Palmer by the immortal line, why do you have to be so mean? Yeah. I think if we ask this question of all villains, all the world's problems will have been solved. Hitler. Yeah. So if all, somebody would have just said, do is, Hitler, why you, Hitler, why did you have to be so mean? Why did you have to be so it's mean? like, people didn't like my paintings. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. He was a very frustrated artist. Jesus Christ. This is really, it, like, <laughs> it's pure infancy. It's truly just the thoughts of children. Yeah. That this is all that's needed to turn a villain to good. It's just, oh, the self-revelation that, oh, I am being mean. Yeah. I must stop being mean. And going back to Simon Winter, who thought these characters were complex. Yeah, it's like that scene from Mitchell and Webb, in which the Nazis suddenly realise they're Nazis because of the dress that they're wearing. They're yeah. Like, oh my God, there are skulls on our clothes. Are you sure we're not the bad guys? It's like that moment, but with none of the intelligence behind it. Kit, aka the Phantom, has to sneak aboard outside the plane in order to get to the location where the climax of the film takes place. So this is the same plot device that they use in Raiders of the Lost Ark, where yeah. Indiana Jones grabs on hold of the submarine. I mean, again, I know we've iterated it several times. The Phantom was an inspiration for Indiana Jones. That's clear. But this is clearly rip-off. Yeah. Indiana Jones might have been inspired by it, but that doesn't give them the right or the leeway to just rip off story elements wholesale and expect them to come across as fresh or new. It ends up adding to the Phantom's identity crisis, in that they are just taking elements from all of these different inspirations, all of these films that are in at the time, and doing nothing original or unique with them. Mm. And we go inside the interior of this island, where there is a pirate ship, and it's all caves, and there's a big layer. This is Kabai Singh's layer. This is part of the Singh Brotherhood. Yes. Where we get that one-on-one tying the Seng Brotherhood back into it again, yes. even though they <laughs> haven't been in any of the film but for a briefest of snippets in the prologue. Yeah, well, this is the twist, isn't it? Because it's revealed that Quill is also a member of the Seng Brotherhood, even though he doesn't seem to know any of these other pirates. No, no he weird. just has a tattoo. Yeah, I didn't get that part. And it's unnecessary. It's a twist that is expected to change your understanding of this particular character. But it doesn't matter. It's yeah. completely irrelevant. There's something of a standoff here between Xander Drax and the Seng Brotherhood. Yeah, Kabai Seng. Yeah, Kabai Seng. We don't know whether he's immortal 
or whether he's a descendant of the original pirate. It's never made clear. No, they could have made him out to be something of a anti-phantom, actually, that his family's been following the same path, but in terms of villainy. And again, it's another missed opportunity. I keep talking about this film in regards to missed opportunities. The whole film's a missed opportunity. And scene by scene, you're just reminded constantly that it could be better. Mm. There are moments where it works. There are moments where it works well. But as a whole, you're just constantly being bombarded with the fact that there's a better film somewhere in here. And Kabai Seng is played by Kari Hiroyuki Tagawa. Kari to his friends. And yeah, and Drax presents to the skulls and he proposes a partnership. And the other guy is not having any of it. And he reveals that there's a fourth skull that controls the other three. <laughs> Who could have it? <laughs> Who has another skull-shaped appendage? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that would change my understanding the Phantom's, of the Phantom completely. The Phantom Skullcock. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that, that's his secret weapon. Oh, yeah, and this is what I actually wrote in my notes. Surprise, surprise, plot hole. Because if Kabai Sang is revealing that there is four skulls rather than three, how come Quill doesn't know this, seeing as he's a member of the Sang Brotherhood? I have no idea. It just illustrates just how irrelevant it is that he'd be a part of this brotherhood. Yeah, there's no point for Quill being a member because he doesn't know any of the customs or the background. They all feel like elements that are holdovers from a better story. Yeah. There's a nice bit where the last mob boss gets taken out by a cannon. Oh yeah, it's, well. it's a great shot actually. <laughs> like literally a great shot. It made me laugh out loud that actually. Yeah. Because he, he gets fired completely off the set yeah. <laughs> into the sea. All the while, Phantom is watching on. He's not taking part in any of this action. He's just on the sidelines. Many great moments for him to intervene and... Oh, yeah, but, uh, no, but they no. just decide to him just to watch. Salah sees the Phantom, but she doesn't let on because he's changed heart completely at this point. Yeah. He does reveal himself, finally, and there's a fight with Kabai. There's some staged sword fights between Kabai Singh and the Phantom. Oh, of course. It all goes a little bit Pirates of the Caribbean yeah, for a moment. Yeah, because there's a whole thing where the Kabai says, oh, I've kill the phantom many times alluding to other phantoms that he may have killed again this doesn't really it kind of alludes to the fact that he may be immortal but there's no viable explanation as to why i wouldn't mind if it was a twist that they were saving till a certain point in the film because you could have easily had it it would have been the skull's power that has kept him alive Mm -hmm. and that's why he wants to keep the skulls and why he won't do any deals yeah the mystery behind the phantom's origins is told to the audience very early on so all of these musings that all these different characters have about who the phantom is are just useless because we the audience have the answer and we get this set this other adjacent set that's got a submarine in it and it's all industrial whereas the previous set is all oldie worldy and piratey yeah. Where the hell did they get all that other stuff? Because they have this submarine that explains all the missing ships, but it comes out of nowhere again. Another element of a better film somewhere mm. that uses these elements in a more effective way. There's a fight with Quill. For me, all the fights in this sequence are very sluggishly choreographed and edited and shot. Yeah. There's no excitement in this section. I really like the spectacle moments in the film earlier, especially to do with the vehicle chases. You've got the truck on the rickety bridge. You've got the chase through the jungle with the plane and the cars. I really like those moments, but any time it comes to a personal fist fight or an actual one-on-one battle, the film drops the ball. Yeah. Because it does feel very blocky, very staged, and there's no natural movement to it, really. Drax has managed to get hold of all the skulls at this point, the three main skulls, and he's holding them together and he's got this, like, death ray going on. 
He holds the power of the sun in his hands. <laughs> I don't know what the sun's got to do with it. but No, no. And then we find out that the fourth skull is actually the Phantom's ring as it fires a laser back at him. Yeah, but not before this, he destroys Quill, which oh, of completely course. undoes the whole plot line involving him killing the Phantom. Yeah, that's the way it just adds up to nothing. Nope. So that opportunity is missed. <laughs> yeah, another one. The Phantom has the fourth skull in his ring and he only just realises what it's for. And again, it's all wishy-washy. Like, I only just realised I had this ring and I know what it's for now. I really think there's something to be said about the sentence, the Phantom fires a laser beam out of his ring. It just makes me laugh. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) He, like, deflects the rays of this skull collection. Drax can't handle it and bursts into flames and disappears. Yeah, but doesn't he make a grand exclamation of how brilliant it all is just before he explodes? And leaves on a laugh. Yeah, exactly. It's always nice. Leaves on a laugh. It's all good. Again, he's the best thing about this film. Yeah, they escape in the submarine and there's some more dodgy effects with the volcano exploding. They watch it from a Batlock tank. Yeah, it's the <laughs> Phantom, Diana, and the Catherine Zeta-Jones character. He was completely redundant by this point. Yeah, actually, in the following scene... It would have been scene, better for it to have been killed off and stayed bad. Definitely. There's no point to this character being there. Definitely. And actually, in the following scene, we are back at the Phantom's lair, and she is nowhere to be seen. It's just the Phantom and Diana Palmer, and what the hell's happened to her? She comes to pick her up at the end. Oh, of course she does, yeah. yeah but it could have been anybody exactly. who did that. <sighs> God, why does she have to be so mean? Why do you have to be so mean? <laughs> um, God, I hate that song. Oh, yeah. No, it's shit, stuck in my head. But no, Diana doesn't want to marry the Phantom. <laughs> Tying that in there. And it's around about this time that we find out the film's been really all about the Phantom getting laid. Yeah, and he reveals himself to her. Not yeah. in that way, he just takes his visor off. <laughs> <laughs> Are you ready to see another purple-headed Phantom? Oh, dear me. <laughs> there is a nice pulpy moment where he does take off his head mask and reveals his face, but all his eye makeup is gone. Yeah, of I course. did like that part. I thought that part was done on purpose. I read that he actually shaved his head yes. in order to fit the costume. So any scene in which he has hair was filmed first. Yes, they did, and yeah. all of the scenes of him actually in a suit were filmed next. So any scene in which we see him taking off his mask, it's always done in two shots. They were actually filmed at completely separate moments, and it led to some cracking wig work on yeah. Titanic. And uh, <laughs> Diana leaves. The only reveals himself to the one he intends to marry, and he's just like, meh. Yeah, but she's not ready to marry him, so she kind of just does one on him. And it's almost a setup for future adventures of the Phantom. Because Billy Zane signed up for three movies. Mm. So he was... Totally committed and geared up for this being a trilogy. I really feel for him in this film, I do, because we said it earlier, but he's trying. His commitment is not in question here. Yeah, she leaves him hanging and she may return, which the narrator alludes that she will do, so totally blows any of the mystery on tension. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So she's leaving now, but she'll be back. Yeah. It's like Mac and me. (laughs) We'll be back. No, you won't. No, you won't. No, you're done. Yeah, to be honest, it has that feel like some of the earlier Marvel films where it's a trailer for a movie that never begins. I'd say that's absolutely bang on, yeah. So the Phantom ends on a note that suggests there are further adventures to come. And yet there are curiously none. Except for a 2009 made-for-TV movie. That bears no resemblance to this one. But we've talked about the story. Now it's time for us to get 
into the stats and facts. Mm. Maybe there are clues there. Okay, so first off, we're going to start with the critics and straight out the gate, Rotten Tomatoes score 43%. Uh, it sounds round about fair to me. I would say probably I could imagine it being just over 50, but that does seem to yeah. be the mark for me. Yeah, it's like a two and a half to three out of five film. Yeah, the average rating is more in line with that. It's 5.2 out of 10. Yeah. Which I think is bang on. It's a middling film. It's right down the middle there. It's neither awful nor great. It's passable. However, it has one big fan in Roger Ebert. Roger Ebert loves this film. He gave it 3.5 out of 4. And he called it smashing entertainment on the story level. Hmm. Was he on morphine at the time? Empire gave it 3 out of 5. Which is fair. Yeah, it's got 4.9 on IMDb. It all seems about right to me. Yeah. Kim Newman, who was reviewing at the time, he recognises Billy Zane, but uh, he recognised that there was something lacking, which probably would have been the depth part. Yeah. <laughs> Do you want to talk about the box office? Yeah, sure. Um, before we talk about box office, though, I want to throw the budget out there just to give everybody something to frame these numbers against. Yeah. So the budget was $45 million. Which is a lot at the time, but it's still not busting the bank. Terminator 2 came out a few years before, and that was the first movie made for over $100 million. Yeah. So even for that standards, it's still just it's an average blockbuster budget. It was budget. a middle-tier exactly. production. Yeah. But even so, in terms of the domestic gross, it only made $17 million. Mm. And it's open and weekend, it opened to sixth place with just $5 million. It opened against The Rock, which grossed $25 million in the same weekend. And actually, it ranked below Dragonheart in its second weekend, Mission Impossible in its third. So there's a film that's really been remembered mm. because we are currently still getting Mission Impossible films coming out, and they're getting better as they go. See, I can't imagine it competing against any of those films because I still feel like it's a film that was made much earlier. It feels like it's been made held on to for a couple of years and then released. Yeah, it's a film... Almost like The Seventh Son. Yeah, it's a film out of time. Mm. Even when you compare it to the films that was released against then, even Dragonheart feels more modern when compared to The Phantom. Yeah. And just one more film that it opened up against that really gives this film context is it actually failed to match Twister <laughs> in its fifth week. Wow. Exactly. Fifth so week. This really was a failure. And I think you can really see why it's been forgotten. I don't think it was remembered a week after it came out. I think there was a problem with the marketing. I think there was a distinct lack of it. I don't think there was a, a major ad campaign. There was a couple of tie-ins and there was a milk campaign, which I showed you earlier, which <laughs> yeah. is hilarious. We'll if place you, it if on you the ever Facebook. type in the Phantom Milk campaign, you'll be able to see the poster that they used and it is hilarious. We'll put a picture on Facebook just so anybody that wants to see yeah. it can look at it. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> I'm not sure whether it's a studio thing, whether they lost faith in it. Yeah, and there's something else I want to say about it. This is the year that saw the release of Independence Day. It took the top spot worldwide with $817 million. That's a phenomenal amount of money for the time, and even now. And when you look at the films in the charts, it paints a clear picture as to why The Phantom has been forgotten. Casting aside the issues of the film, it was something of a relic even for the time it was released. Independence Day, Twister, and even Mission Impossible were all marked step forwards for special effects-driven spectacle, and The Phantom simply looks old-fashioned. I think the other point to make is that you can bunch it together with all the other 90s pulp films, yet this was the last of them, and it didn't learn from any of those mistakes that the prior films had made. Yeah, you almost have to ask, 
why? How can it fall into so many of the traps, considering it's walking in the steps of other films? Yeah, and also because it's not in line with any of Falk's comics and the style of that he was trying to portray. And even down to the Phantom's father, we were talking about him being too old to play the Phantom. And that's true, because in the comic books, the Phantom's father is a much younger figure. Oh, right. Yeah. Okay, so there are the facts, and I think we're both closer to seeing why the Phantom has been forgotten. But now it's time for me to ask the big question. Is Phantom a treasure that should be distributed throughout the world? Or should it be buried and lost forever? Now this is the thing, because this is a film that actually has gained traction on home video. It has become a cult film somewhat, because of DVD and video sales. Well, it would make it a true cult film, in the sense of the word. There are many films that come out now that make a modest amount of the box office that people go on to call cult films. But cult films are the type of films that really do bomb out and are followed by only a few people. Yeah. Like Howard the Duck, for instance, is yeah. a true bomb. Scott Pilgrim, on the other hand, not really. And there was even talk as late as 2008 about them doing a full-on sequel to this film, including some of the same cast members, i.e. Billy Zane, Christy Swanson and Catherine Zeta-Jones. There was talk <laughs> of doing that. And then it morphed into the sci-fi TV movie. And then there was another reboot muted called The Phantom Legacy. That was going to have that charismatic actor Sam Worthington as The Phantom. Oh, no. Yeah. I'm glad that didn't happen. And now it's actually in the hands of a producer called Mark Gordon, who has done things like Grey's Anatomy, Matador, Speed, Saving Private Ryan. He's a He's been around a bit as a producer, so yeah. we'll see what happens with that. There is room, I think, now for a Phantom adaptation, especially in this world of superhero movies gone mad. And maybe I would like to see them try and not update it, but do a pulp adaptation again, but just do it better. Because I think doing it as a modern day thing now, would it wouldn't add anything to what's out there already. So doing it in the 1930s or the 1940s, would be a unique element for it. Yeah, and I do think that there is space for a Phantom film right now, but I hope that whoever comes on board has a clearer vision and knows what he wants the film to be. Yeah. And rather than following the footsteps of the films that have come before, it just tries and does its own thing. But now it's time for me to ask the big question. I'm a little bit on the fence, only because it is a lot of fun when you're watching it. Maybe for some other wrong reasons. But it yeah. is quite fun watching it. I wouldn't, you wouldn't say that this film is dull by any means. It's not dull because of things like Treat Williams and Billy Zane chomping up the scenery. I think I'm going to have to side with it being best forgotten, though, because there's just not enough depth there. And because it doesn't learn any of the lessons of previous pulp adaptations, even at the time, it was irrelevant. Yeah, I'm going to echo some of your sentiments because I do think the film is fun. There are only some parts that I was bored with. And a lot of the time I was scratching my head as to why they chose to go with this in this particular direction with one scene or that particular direction. But mm. I was still engaged with the film in terms of entertainment. Mm. And I think Billy Zane and Treat Williams have a great time with what they're given, even though I think in relation to Billy Zane, he's not given much to go with. But I can't help but think that there's just nothing inherently original or truly memorable about the film. And it's riding on the coattails of better films while doing nothing original with the material. I mean, for all its flaws, I can totally see why Stephen Sommers' The Mummy succeeded as a genre-bending Indiana Jones ripoff where this did not. It's because Sommers knew what he wanted his film to be and executed it in a way with a heavy and often effective reliance on computer-generated spectacle, 
that it felt modern despite its old-fashioned settings. He utilised new tools to tell an old story, and although that ultimately became his undoing, with The Mummy it worked. The Phantom plays it too safe and straight, and when it works it ultimately comes off as nothing more than a fun diversion. It has been forgotten for the right reasons in my opinion, and although I wouldn't call it a bad film, I can't bring myself to give it a second chance. So it's definitely a best forgotten for me. Mm. And I do it begrudgingly. I do think there's definitely space for a Phantom-related film in the future. Mm. Even now. Yeah. But this wasn't it. Not at all. And that's all we have time for for today's episode of Best Forgotten Movies. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at B4Movies. And get in touch with your suggestions for possible episodes. Join us next week when Andy and I will be watching David Lynch play with his big worms in June. And it's bye from Andy. Bye-bye. And bye from myself. Thanks for listening.